That's what we're doing in these weeks. We're looking at these gospel stories, and while I call them stories, I'm sure you know uh, that these are more than stories. These are things that happen. These are real encounters, and we're looking at these stories for lots of reasons. Um, For some of us, looking at these stories is a reminder. It's a reminder to us that Christianity, as I said last week, Christianity is not ideas in our heads, not at its core, not in its essence. It's not a moral code, not at its core, not in its essence. It's not a spiritual experience, not at its center. Christianity contains these things, but at its core, at its center, Christianity is knowing Jesus. It is being in relationship to Jesus. That is what Christianity is. Jesus defined eternal life of all things in this way. This is eternal life, that they may know you, know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And for some of us, that may be a reminder. For others of us, it may be new, frankly. You may never have thought about this in this way, and I want to encourage you to do it. Christianity is knowing God, and it is knowing Jesus Christ. And what hangs in the balance here is eternity. That's what Jesus says in John 17, 3. This is eternal life. And so to know Jesus is eternal life. It means that eternity hangs in the balance. The way I respond to Jesus has eternal consequences. It is eternally significant. And tragically and and sadly, those who at the end of history cannot say, yes, I know Jesus Christ, to them, Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. And so these are things of tremendous significance and tremendous importance. And I want you to have that in mind as we look at this passage in Mark chapter 10. The story of this young man. There are young men in this room. This story has enormous significance not only for young men, but for old men. Not only just for men, but for women. And I want you to have these things in mind because they're so very important as we look at this story. Mark 10, verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him. And knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. 
And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and have followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we need your help. We need you to be merciful to us, to all of us. Open our hearts, lift the fog, give us eyes to see by your spirit, stir up our souls to receive these words and to apply them to our lives. Lord, by your spirit, you in connection with your word can do this and we ask you that you would, that you, Lord Jesus, might be acknowledged and praised and glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You've been standing a long time. I'm sorry about that. Here's what is before us. It's this matter of eternal life. That's that's what's very much on the mind of this young man. And as you look at this story, we've been in the habit of doing threes. Uh, This morning we're going to do fives, okay? It doesn't mean we're going to be 60% longer. It just means we're going to do these five in a more abbreviated fashion. Five things that I want to to point out to you out of this story. There's first an urgent appeal. An urgent appeal, that's the first thing. Then there's the second thing. There is a painful disclosure. An urgent appeal and a painful disclosure. And then there is a picture of love. That's the third thing. And then the fourth thing is a tragic response. Tragic response. And then there's a fifth thing, which is a glorious promise. Five things. An urgent appeal, a painful disclosure, a picture of love, a tragic response, and then a glorious glorious promise. The first thing, the thing that you see first is this urgent appeal. It, 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 it happens as this man runs up to Jesus. You see a note of urgency in this. Look again at verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, and you can only imagine that as there always seems to be, though it's not noted in the text, there always seems to be a crowd of people with Jesus wherever he goes someplace. So it's not hard to imagine unless he was sneaking away under the cover of early morning darkness or late afternoon darkness. It's not hard to imagine that there was a crowd of people coming with Jesus as he sets out on his journey. That as he sets out, a man 
runs up to him and kneels before him and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life is the thing that's on his mind. And he's urgent about it. There's urgency here. It's a young man whom Luke describes in his gospel, Luke 18, 18, describes him as a ruler. It's an interesting term. It doesn't describe someone who possesses an office or who is in an office. We typically think of rulers as people in offices. Rather, it describes someone of socioeconomic standing. It describes someone from a particular class of people, the upper classes of people, a person of status, a person of rank. He may have had an office, but what is in view here is socioeconomic distinction. It's like saying he was a Vanderbilt. It's very much like that. It's like saying he was a Kennedy or maybe even another kind of rank. He was a Bach, someone of position, someone who was acknowledged as being in that position. And as verse 22 tells us, he was also someone who was wealthy. He had great possessions. The phrase literally means he had great estates, meaning he had acreage that had been developed. And we know something about that here along the coast, don't we? He had acreage that had been developed. It was land that itself was valuable, but he had great estates. It was developed in some way. It was, if you will, income producing. And he had a lot of it. He had a lot of it. And this man comes to Jesus with urgency. In fact, he runs to Jesus. He runs to Jesus. People run when they're urgent, don't they? When there's urgency about something. I don't think any of us, any of us who was alive on September 11, 2001, I don't think any of us will forget what we saw probably on September 11th and maybe on September 12th and 13th and 14th through the 18th and 20th and maybe right down to the present these images of people fleeing these collapsing buildings. The cameraman on the street in Manhattan with one of the towers behind these people filled with smoke and dust, the dust that comes from crumbling and crashing steel and concrete and people fleeing past the cameraman. People run when there's urgency. This man is running to Jesus. It's a matter of urgency to him. Those of you who have read Pilgrim's Progress may may remember Pilgrim who flees the city of destruction. See, something imminent is to happen. Something, Something is approaching. Something is coming and it's frightening and it's terrifying. And Pilgrim, Christian, flees the city of destruction, with his hands over his ears, refusing to hear the cries and the pleas of his wife, of his children, of his neighbors, of his friends. What kind of insanity has gotten into this man that he would leave this fair city? People run. They flee at the approach of danger. There is something urgent in this man's heart. Frankly, what he does is an embarrassment. It's striking. 
Luke uses this same word in his gospel, Luke 15. He uses it as Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. He uses this very word to describe the father in that story and what the father does when he sees the prodigal son returning, when he sees the son coming home after he has wasted his father's wealth, after he has been dissolute. After he has wasted his life and and he sees what has happened and he sees what he's done and he, and he remembers his father. He remembers his father's house that his father is gracious and merciful, kind and compassionate. He grew up with that. He lived with that. And the son comes home and as he approaches home, the father hikes up, hikes up his robes and runs from his house down the street exposing his legs, doing a thing that was highly, highly embarrassing in the culture. But he doesn't care to embarrass himself because the son is coming home, the young man, this man of position, this man of place, this Vanderbilt, (laughs) this Kennedy, this Bach, at this point anyway, doesn't care There's an urgency about this. And he races. He runs up to Jesus. People of position don't do that kind of thing. Have you ever seen Prince Charles run? Have you ever seen Queen Elizabeth run? It's unseemly for the heir to the throne to run. But there's something so urgent in this man's mind that he is not he is not thoughtful about being horribly undignified and what does he care about what is he urgent about he's urgent about eternal life there is a crisis brewing there is turmoil in his soul there's a crisis here And he feels the weight of the crisis. We have no idea what precipitated this. We have no idea where he came from. We have no idea what the backstory is. Who knows? Perhaps someone has died. Maybe a neighbor. Maybe a family member. And you know how that that affects you? Maybe there's a neighbor or maybe a family member who is desperately ill. There's no cure for it. We don't know what it is that provoked this man. Maybe it's just deep wrestlings with his own conscience. You know, there is more to you than meets the eye. You know that about yourselves. Maybe there is some crushing load of uncertainty about this man. But whatever it is, he is provoked to embarrass himself and rush up to Jesus And ask him about eternal life, urgency. How urgent are these matters to you this morning? You know, Vero Beach is a great place to live. And it's so, you know, I just sometimes I find it so hard to talk about these things because I like this place. It is beautiful. It's a wonderful place. 
Every time I go across one of those bridges and see that ocean out there, my blood pressure goes down about 30 points. When I leave Orange County and Brevard County and cross the county line into Inyo River County, my blood pressure goes down about 20 points. This is a great place to live. It is a nice place. It is a polite place, especially over here on this side of the bridges. I mean, this is where the really polite people live, over here. It's a polite place. Where's the urgency? I see people running up and down A1A. I saw them this morning, probably a half a dozen of them between my home and this building. Half a dozen people running. Bikers, people biking up and down A1A. Where's the urgency? Where's the urgency? I suppose there's some urgency in that, isn't there, for those of you who exercise? There's urgency about that, isn't there? I've got to keep this heart pumping. I've got to keep this blood flowing. We don't go the next step. We don't go to the next place. But what lurks beneath that urgency, the urgency to keep this heart pumping and keep this blood flowing, is this urgency. This is the only life I have. And i got to hang on to it for as long as I possibly can. But what about the life after this life? What about the time after this time? The time after the 30 minutes on the bike or the 60 minutes pounding the pavement? What about the time after all of those times come to an end? What about it? Do we ponder it? Look. For so many of us in this room, maybe for everybody, I trust for everybody in this room. The question of eternity has been settled. But that doesn't mean that it's a waste of time to ponder it. And maybe for some people in this room, it's not been settled. And maybe it would be wise to ponder it and ask and not assume anything about it. This guy is a guy who had a position of standing and place in the community. And he was willing to embarrass himself because he pondered so deeply this question of eternal life. What is it? Do I have it? Do I know I have it? How do I get it? Questions to be pondered. This man wants to know and he's willing to risk embarrassment. Willing to risk embarrassment as he seeks to find an answer. How about us? How about you in this room? As you contemplate this matter of eternal life, are you ready are you willing to hear what Jesus has to say? Are you ready to hear what Jesus has to say about eternal life and how you possess it, how you have it, how it can be yours? Remember, we're reading through these gospel stories not so we can know what Jesus was like. We're reading these stories so that we can know what Jesus is like and because Jesus is alive and because he's present here by his spirit, I plead with you that you not relegate these things to the upper part of your body. 
Don't just allow these things to land on your brains. Because Jesus is here by his spirit. He wrestles with our hearts. And I ask you to listen to the deep parts of your own soul. Are you ready to hear what Jesus has to say about this matter of eternal life? And here for this man is where the second thing comes in, this painful disclosure. Don't worry, three, four, and five are not going to take this long. Here comes this painful disclosure. It is painful for this man. It is hard. And yet remember what hangs in the balance here. It is eternal life. The man approaches Jesus and calls him one who is good. calls him a good teacher. A good teacher. He rushes up to him. He kneels before him and he calls him good. Again, he does the thing in the culture which you would expect to be done deferring to the good teacher, the teacher with the reputation. This young man does that. He calls him good and he kneels, deferring to him in the culture of the day. That is what you did. But also in the culture of the day, there would have been a corresponding response. In the culture of the day, if someone comes up to the teacher and says, good teacher, the teacher responds by saying, good man. Good man. Yes, my good man. But you see, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say that. And Jesus doesn't say that because he does see this man. He knows this man. You remember last week when Jesus dealt with the lawyer. He knew who the lawyer was. He knew what he knew. Jesus knew what he knew. And so he asked the lawyer who wanted to know about eternal life, Tell me how to get it. And the lawyer knew and he gave him an answer. Well, you see here, Jesus is dealing with someone else he knows. He knows this man so well, just as he knows you. And he knows me so well. Risen, ascended, present by his spirit. He knows me. And frankly, If we can use a fishing analogy that fits here along the coast, he's hooked another one and he's reeling him in. Why do you call me good? There is no one good save God alone. Jesus is making no comment about himself here. Jesus is not questioning the propriety of the man saying this is the good teacher. He is that supremely. He is the incarnation of good. But the focus is not upon Jesus. Jesus focuses upon the man. Why do you call me good? There is no one good but God alone. And that includes you, my young friend. That includes you. You know the commandments. Look at what Jesus says, verses 18 and following. You know the commandments, verse 19. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Here's the striking thing about Jesus' response to the man. Do you notice this? Do you see this? Honestly, just saw it for the first time this last week. Been doing this stuff for 35 years, and I just saw this one. I get help in seeing the things that I see from dead white European males, books. 
You see Jesus' response to him? Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't defraud. Jesus responds to him with what is commonly referred to as the second table of the law. The things that we do, the things that are right to do in our relationships to one another, those external behaviors that demonstrate before the eyes of the watching world that that we are good people. He focuses, Jesus does, entirely upon that second table, those behaviors that can be observed. And Jesus says nothing in his response to the man about the so-called first table of the law. The table of the law that reflects love for God. Oh yes, you've loved your neighbor. You've honored your neighbor beginning with your parents. The man says, I've done these things from the time I was a little boy. I've kept the code. I've done what is right. My parents were pleased with me. Society is pleased with me. I do the right things. I did the right thing to you, good teacher. I called you good and I knelt before you. I do what is expected of me. But Jesus, in his response to him, does what he did with the lawyer last week. He takes him beneath the surface. He takes him down into the depths of his heart and his true affections, his true desires. The man stands before Jesus and says, I've done these things I'm a good guy. You're a good guy. You must recognize good guys when you see good guys. And Jesus, in effect, says, and this is the picture of love. This is the third thing. You see, after the response, the text says, Jesus looked at him and loved him, loved him, Jesus, in effect, says to the man, loving him as he does, I don't care what you do. I care what you love. I don't care what's on the surface because what is on the surface is not the measure of your eternal well-being. What is the measure of your eternal well-being is what you, in your heart of hearts, apart from all of the appearances and all of the status and everything else, what you, in your heart of hearts, love. Jesus loves him. And Jesus, please hear this. This is so critically important. Jesus, because he loves him exposes what is in his heart. Let me say this to you. If you're struggling this morning, if your conscience is saying, there is something I love more than God, there is something I love more than Jesus, there is something I love more than the incarnation of eternal and perfect love and grace and mercy, which is Jesus, don't silence Don't silence your conscience. Don't dismiss it. Because again, it is Jesus who is wrestling with us. 
Jesus takes him beneath the level of appearances and shows him his heart, shows him what he really loves. What's the proof of this? Jesus, in effect, is saying, I don't care what you do. I care what you love. And if you wonder whether or not I put my finger on the pulse of who you are, young man, let me ask you to do this. Let me ask you. If I've missed the mark, if I've missed the mark in identifying what you really love, what you really care about, what is your real God, that thing to which you turn for security and safety, if I'm wrong in my assessment of you, then go do this. Go sell everything that you have, all of your great estates and lands, and give the proceeds for the poor. Give the proceeds for the poor. See, that's the deal, isn't it? That's the hard thing about the gospel, my friends. And I say this to you, whether you've heard this sort of thing, you're hearing it the first time or you've heard it the thousandth time. The real deal is not this external stuff. The real deal is what is in the depth of my soul. And if you're confused about that at this point, remember that Jesus looks at this man who has come to him urgently. Jesus looks at him and loves him. Jesus doesn't turn away from people because they're confused or disordered or chaotic or because they have misaligned affections. Jesus loves people in that condition. And Jesus simply wants to put the finger on the true pulse of our souls and expose before our own eyes what our true gods are. And for this man, it was his stuff. It was his stuff, his acreage his portfolio. And again, Jesus says, if I'm wrong, here's how you can show me. Here's how you can show me that I'm wrong about your heart. You can sell it all. You can give it to the poor and you can come and follow me. And I'd have you this week. Let me, let me encourage you to do this. This is hard. But let me encourage you to read beyond this story and simply note that immediately following this story, Jesus has a third conversation with his disciples about the cross. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Where do you go? Stay with me. Where do you go when you follow Jesus? You go to the cross. You go to the cross. Come, Jesus says, And follow me. And what follows then is this fourth thing. This tragic response to Jesus the King. Jesus the incarnation of love. Jesus who loves this man and who summons him to come and follow him. And who makes this great promise, this greater promise. I say to you, he's speaking to his disciples, but he says it in an abbreviated form to this man. 
If you come and follow me, you will have treasure infinitely greater than you can imagine. You will have treasure in heaven, he says to the man. Later to his disciples, he says, if you give up anything in this life, sisters, brothers, fathers, mothers, lands, estates, if you sell them and give them all to the poor, I tell you, the greater promises you receive a hundredfold what you've given up. You know what a hundred is? It's ten times ten. And ten represents fullness in the scriptures. How do you get more than fullness? How do you get ten times fullness? You get limitless, unending fullness. That's what Jesus promises to this man. And yet the tragic response is, and this is why I call this sermon a human tragedy. The tragic response is that Jesus watches this man's face collapse. His face fell like one of those buildings on September 11th. His face fell and he turned and he walked away. He walked away from the incarnation of infinite love and grace and mercy and kindness and he turned back toward riches that only rot. Riches that only rot. Jesus wanted him to see, wanted his mind to apprehend, wanted his desires to lay hold of, wanted his will to be engaged with promises and hopes that are infinitely more valuable than the rot and rust of great earthly estates. Be clear about this. This man didn't merely turn away from someone. He turned away from these incredible promises and these incredible hopes because he loved his lands. He loved his estates. He loved his possessions. all of which are destined to be consumed by rust and rot, destined for the junk heap. And that's what makes this such a tragic human story. What is eternal life? As I said at the very beginning, eternal life is having Jesus. It is having Jesus. And it is being had by Jesus. He who has the Son has the life. John says in 1 John 5. He who knows the Son, Jesus says, knows eternal life. Where rust and thieves and moths cannot consume. 
So here's the question to ponder. Here's the question to think about and wrestle with. Do I, do I know him? Do I know him? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that because you love us, you are relentless in loving us and you are not afraid to expose what is deep within us. Give us grace, each of us, to flee these things that cannot save us. Give us grace to flee to you, to lay hold of you, the one who can save us and give us life everlasting. We ask in your name, amen. I think I would like to do again, if you'll allow me to disrupt things, I think I would like to do again what we did last month at communion, and that is forego singing at this moment. I'd like to invite you simply for a moment to be quiet, and then after a moment of quiet for you to reflect and to think about these things, I will, by God's grace, lead us to the Lord's table. Let me invite you simply to be quiet before the Lord for just a moment. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a one as I? Thus might I hide my blushing face, while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness, and melt mine eyes in tears. Drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Lord Jesus, on the night you were betrayed, had a final meal with his disciples. And he, as he met with them, set before them this sacrament of the Lord's Supper. I'll just remind you that Jesus did not institute this sacrament until after Judas had left. Judas was a pretender. It was after the pretender left that Jesus instituted this sacrament. And there's significance in that. And we say this each time we observe communion, that this table is not a table for pretenders. It's not a table for those who try to clean themselves up, try to cover themselves up with stuff. It's for people like the disciples, like Peter who denied Jesus, like Thomas who doubted Jesus, like 
all of the disciples save John, who fled from Jesus when he got in trouble. It's a table for sinners. It is for sinners that Jesus has died. And it is to sinners that this invitation is extended. Jesus would invite any and all who have trusted in him alone for their salvation to come to this table to be reminded of his death for their sins. So in his name, I make that invitation. If you know who you are, you know that you are a sinner, a greater sinner than you imagine, in greater need than you imagine, with a heart that is confused and chaotic and disordered like this young man, then in the name of Jesus, I invite you to come to this table and lay hold of these elements and be reminded of Jesus' death for sinners. For those who have not laid hold of Jesus, who have not stepped over that line, for those who, in one way or another, have turned away from eternal life, we say to you, this sacrament can do you no good. In fact, it can do you great harm. This table is for those who have turned away from themselves and who have turned to Christ and who have laid hold of him for eternal life. So I, I say to you and I invite you, if you have never done that, the words don't matter. It is the disposition of your heart. It is the longing of your soul. It is, it is your own sense of urgency about this. If you have never laid hold of Jesus, then I invite you to lay hold of him. Because he is eternal life and forgiveness and freedom and hope and all the rest. Lay hold of him. And then having laid hold of him, Jesus, come by your spirit. Come and minister to us by your spirit. Come and open 